bitches bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast, and it's the second episode in this time known as election time. Yeah, that election. Anyway, if you listen to us, have some comments, want to email, check out all of our social media on the show notes. Also, we have merch. That's right. You can carry bad and bitchy on your chest. Check us out, redbubble.com slash people slash bad and bitchy. Also, if you like the work that we're doing, please contribute to our Patreon, patreon.com slash bad and bitchy. All right, let's get into it. All right, so climate change. So last week, there was a global climate strike, thanks to the work done by Greta Thunberg. And a special shout out to Autumn Pelletier, the indigenous water activist from Canada, who spoke to a huge crowd at the UN over the weekend. The Liberals announced that they were quickly dragged on social media for a decision in 2018 to purchase the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The NDP also trolled them by releasing a press release that read, quote, you period bought period a period pipeline period. And that is in all caps, y'all. They also announced that they would help homeowners make their homes more energy efficient, as well as several other policy proposals related to climate change. And I think it basically said two billion tweet trees. That's it. That's the tweet. <laughs> it's like, Okay. Uh, Meanwhile, the Conservatives, in addition to improving transit, they also want to ride and road. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Just we gave a short summary of the NDP's uh, platform on Green New Deal. And you can read through it. And and I think it's probably the one that really ties in. um, And it's really the big focus of their campaign. Their their main platform is to tie in all facets of, of the federal agenda towards a um, you know, carbon free or, or moving towards a, a low carbon, um, including the creation of 300,000 jobs, moving to uh, zero emission vehicles, uh, have and, and goals that are short, more short term than the 2050 vision. But uh, and I just think it's just a lot more viable. You know, I mean, as much as we say, like, it's kind of liberals and say you bought a pipeline, I think that's very much front in mind for a lot of folks especially climate activists and folks who are in close to this issue um i you know i think they just have and just filled with so many doubts about the sincerity um of their general approach and frankly when they say you know bill you know <laughs> planting two billion trees it's just like it, it just sounds like something someone <laughs> running for like school president would like make as a platform. It does sound like Reese Witherspoon <laughs> 1999 election. I yeah. will say that. Yeah. Change. It's just maneuvering little tweaks at the edges. Yeah. And, I and, mean, I, and it's very, there's no vision. There's no, 
I, I, I think I, that's true for the leading parties. The NDP platform does talk about target companies more than anything, corporations, and talk about eliminating fossil fuel subsidies. Mm-hmm. And where they're pulling the money is a lot more obvious. So whether it's fossil eliminating fossil fuel subsidies to corporations to kind of abide by these policies. So you pay half the taxes if you, you know, reduce your emissions by a certain level. So, you know, it just depends what you think would actually incentivize change. And I think when I think of structural change, I don't think the carrots of the NDP policy, which is, you know, bright line rules that are enforced are going to get us, are more likely to get us there. So it's a question of which which plan and which caretaker of that plan do you think is actually going to, you know, suit up and follow through that? We don't talk a lot in Canada about lobbying mm-hmm. and the strength of the different lobby intre- lobbying interests or yeah. different rather industry uh, industries and their interests. We've had some conversations around it, but I think there needs to be more there. Mm-hmm. And when you see the Liberals essentially cave to that lobby with the pipeline, I just think that they had such an opportunity at that time. That's what. Honestly, I feel like had they laid that out and in any sort of in any take any issue. Well, I think they've 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 said that they just say different things to different people and different audiences. Mm -hmm. And so what Jagmeet Singh said, and he kind of waffled at different points, as has the NDP in general because of the Alberta and B.C. issues, but then ultimately came out against the pipeline, Mm -hmm. the LNG, both. Yeah, both both projects and in doing and the LNG project yeah too. and the LNG project and in doing so alienated some folks in, in BC and Alberta yeah. for that reason okay. um, and I think to me that's a, that's frankly admirable that he's taken that position I think if you wanted to be very cynical you could have run a campaign that was an NDP campaign that was geared at getting this you know the people who voted NDP in BC and Alberta to translate their votes to the federal party and you know kind of pander to them on the energy piece but I think the the federal NDP you know didn't want to take you know decided and I think that's a uh, you know, took a political risk in choosing to have a bit more coherency in their platform mm-hmm. and not aligning themselves, right. you know, with the energy sector. And I think that that's, they could have, or they could have found a buyer for it rather than procuring, procuring it as a government project yeah. or, or whatever. And then at least tried to like save face. I'm not advocating for that, but they took, I think what is a more cynical approach, which is knowing that the, now they can have it both ways, generally support the pipeline expansions. Right. So, mm-hmm. and I don't think, and I think again, because despite the fact that like 83% of Canadians think climate change is like the most important issue and feel, you know, understand there's a climate crisis. 30 percent of people think it is uh you know extremely important probably the most you know the most important issue they'll face in their lifetime like the polling is there to support it i think there's also unfortunately because of the energy lobby's effective work and like specifically oil and gas like that there is still that countervailing narrative uh, narrative that does overlap with even some of the people who support climate change actions who still who still think that there is a need for you know energy expansion in this country and the this fossil fuel I think that there's a lot of um almost self-imposed gerrymandering around this issue in the sense that I believe that the the difference in support is very regionally based and so what that means seats for example for a party is is 
is also what's making this tension even more sort of yeah no for sure and i guess yeah what i'm saying is the liberals are playing into that and the ndp are taking a national approach so you know i value that i don't know if other people do but i think that's (laughs) that's worth that worthwhile well i i'd like to actually get to the point about how intersectional these platforms Mm -hmm. may or may not be um for example, things like environmental justice needs to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. But we, we think about marginalized communities whose, whose, whose environment, their, their immediate environment has been threatened, especially by either corporate actors or state actors or both. Mm-hmm. And so I would like to hear more about that. I would like to hear more about how we're going. It's not right to talk about climate change and talk about a climate change policy without especially giving some sort of equity lens to the people who have been bearing the brunt of uh, environmental degradation in mm-hmm. their own communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think absolutely that's true. And structural inequalities and, and from intersectional perspectives. And, you know, that's the beautiful thing about the climate strike is that there was um, just amazing representation across the world. We're acting. And in a lot of the, the so-called, you know, whatever, the global south, the reaction is totally different because the the, the way climate change manifests is just so like violent and real and direct. Um, And so you see people who are been displaced and who've experienced, you know, flooding and different weather phenomena and whatever coming out. And because they had experienced those things and, and, you know, and, and, and some of the, um, you know, places where there is the severe smog and, and breathing issues and health issues that are like very prevalent. And we have, we have those two here and, you know, keeping in mind that Canada is heating at twice the the global rate. Um, You know, we have that as well, but I think we've just, associated from it and in other parts of the world i think they're more adept at actually naming it for what it is whereas we've allowed you know the politicization of the issue to um kind of keep us from naming our our health effects you know i grew up in windsor ontario everybody has lung cancer or some form of cancer Mm -hmm. clearly as a product of maybe not climate change but environmental you know degradation and 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 smog you know smog advisory every day and class issues and whatever else and so you know you see the health effects that these kind of environmental um uh, changes have on people but i mean and a lot of uh, you know the climate strike itself uses the language of climate justice so it'd be great to see the parties take that up a bit more yeah the ndp platform does uh and the ndp rather speak about climate justice their platform does and then i think they've they've talked they've done a good talk especially being able to pit themselves against the liberals around actual meaningful consultation to meet the duty to consult Mm -hmm. which the liberals have really against the federal government for failing to consult on some of these energy projects and the federal government has had their ass handed to them in a number of these decisions they're Uh, not very good at no even defending their own selves and no it's amazing it's wild yeah and then you see the green party's uh platform and i expect more <coughs> from them because they're the green party mm-hmm. i expect them to be mm-hmm. able to 
speak to these things. Um, of course, the Green, sorry, even the Conservative Party has a portion in their platform where they do, you know, say plain as day, a changing climate disproportionately impacts candidates and ditch, um, you know, by you know, like, yeah, the, the roads are a really funny example. It's a public investment. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. It, to me, that's like, it's a great job creator to create that kind of transit. And, they, and the CBC has a fact check on the NDP uh, claim that they could create 300,000 jobs and they say easily it's actually a very conservative number they'll probably create more jobs if you follow that plan because it involves a lot of creating of new public infrastructure and any right. time you do that you're necessarily you know employing a lot of people and and actually they find it's a very plausible platform for that reason but yeah i mean i, I don't know why we're not having a conversation about transit um we I should think also be public infrastructure generally especially it, with yeah. low to negative interest rates mm-hmm. like we can actually make an investment yeah. and make investments that are relatively cheap by mm-hmm. historical standards. Mm-hmm. But we're not because we get into this balanced budget bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I'm tired of these balanced budget bullshit like conversations. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about the investments. If you want to make things better for your kids, fucking invest mm-hmm. some money in public infrastructure and education and mm-hmm. all of those things yeah. that we know are drivers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But, w- but the Greyhound shut down operations and out west, I mean, that's a huge impact on a lot of rural and northern communities to be able to travel. Um, and, you know, there was no liberal government response to that. If if I, you know, if I were deciding transport policy or even environmental policy, I'd say, cool, like, let's start the work of, one, getting, like, electric low emissions buses running. We'll, or we'll buy the Greyhound fleet temporarily and start creating, you know, some sort of infrastructure trains though like the train lines in toronto as an example of an urban hub are like so congested and people want to take the train people you'll get a train every five minutes anywhere in the gta now it's wild uh which is a very impressive right this is the go train right the regional train i find is really the icing on the cake of like a mountain of irony in all of this is that you know the liberals made such a big deal this year at getting around the snc lavalin scandal by saying it was to create jobs incidentally snc lavalin is in the business of building trains for public and for public transit right apparently the ones that don't run in winter but well yeah that that you know but like you really care about you know helping create jobs don't let the private sector just do it you can nationalize and you can make public infrastructure and yeah sure maybe don't use snc or use snc i don't really give a fuck at this point but like get them to build get them to build these lines right done properly i don't know and so just to finish you know they do declare the climate a national climate emergency and again i don't want to harp on Catherine mckenna necessarily all the time (laughs) but it's really hard not to and we know we weren't recording but in the summer many of you will remember that she had these multiple tweets water advisories um you know constant water for for yeah, yeah and for yeah. you know and, and not just an Adewapiskat but so many others and the liberals yes. had made a profit promise in the yes. last election that they would put an end to boiled water advisories. Seamus told us yeah. while he was looking out the window. Yeah, but but even tweeting. in 2015, right, it was part of the big things that they campaigned on, yes. and it never came to fruition. Uh, people are obviously still struggling in those communities, and then you get these like very tone deaf tweets from the environment minister, and it's not like like again intersectionality is not not just when it's convenient or not just like in, uh, indigenous step, issues yeah. are a siloed off right, thing right uh, you exactly know. so intertwined you know these things um affect different people with different identities differently 
a lot of those identities are intertwined, etc. The point, like I, I, I just, um, I'm tired of seeing Catherine McKenna's all white environmental tweets. By the way, mm-hmm. because she loves to tweet about how great the environment is and how great the outdoors is, and it's all white people. Mm-hmm. It's all her. It's all people who look like her blonde hair, blue eyed kids. It's very white, and I almost find it offensive that is made up of predominantly white people and indigenous people get shoved to the side when their way of life protecting the environment was exactly what was threatened why partially Mm -hmm. why we're here Mm -hmm. absolutely like that's what angers me yeah yeah and i mean then you take up so much space i'm using air quotes yeah during federal elections and the reality is there's already, they talk about this all the time. We've heard enough about this. I think it bears reminding that indig- indigenous issues, I'm again using air quotes, air quotes. but like, She's you know, quoting. whatever. The, <laughs> um, those types of policy issues fall to the federal government. So all of the things that are provincial for people who are not like, hou- like housing, mm-hmm. like those are know, all federally, right. Those regulated. are all federally regulated mm-hmm. when it, you know, there is a different role that the federal government plays. So yes, there is a place in every party's platform that you catered to, you know, communities plural, because there's different relationships, whether treaty, non-treaty, and then, you know, the, the North and, and everything else, there's mm-hmm. going to be different relationships there. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these things that, affect indigenous people in unique and discreet ways but not just affect indigenous people but as you say like indigenous people are leading on this i mean you know but also like historically you know it's indigenous people who were are the the keepers of of the land in so many ways and it, it is um you know so that has to their involvement and their voice and has to leadership be and center in every in, 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 in everything yeah absolutely and so you know i mean the liberals you know they they talk a good talk as with most things they're just good marketers but you just don't see it translating and i think you see what happened with um you know with with the consult with the consult failure to consult on so many of these projects um you know and they liberal the liberal party line has been well we're consulting with some leadership and we you know and they're picking and choosing who is the legitimate voices within these communities and who they consult with and predominantly first nations communities that are having on treaty lands that are having these issues with the federal government over the pipeline expansions we don't under you know we don't have a real understanding of of those of the dynamics there and of or really even the the constitutional requirement that f- of duty to consult and what that means and and i think it's been in the government's interest not to have those conversations with the broader canadian public in any real way and just say we're good on indigenous issues without actually doing having an you know where like wearing you know what they're actually doing in in the open fair enough so we're back with rant and receipts where we each bring a topic to rant over and uh hopefully the other one joins in (laughs) so amy do you want to go sure yeah i mean i just wanted to kind of comment about how silly sort of things have been on the trudeau campaign post uh, the blackface photos i think it's why what do you mean amy (laughs) i mean there have been a number of of stunts you know just a lot of uh kissing babies and um 
and it's just like so corny and hackneyed but some of these announcements are just like again not kind of like the we're gonna plant two billion trees thing are so i don't know a little bit juvenile and and i shouldn't even say juvenile because that's not the week to say it because clearly the kids have the better platform points clearly but it's <laughs> but like you know the announcement in Sudbury paddles up in a canoe and says he's gonna give you know low-income families two thousand dollars each year, 75,000 kids who qualify will enjoy in slow-income kids. I smell assimilation, kids, okay? Well, yeah, will enjoy a four-day adventure with their families. It sounds like he's giving away a prize on, like, the price is right or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, Trudeau. you and your family can enjoy four-night stay in one of Canada's great provincial parks. Like, that's the- what it sounds like. Trudeau and the Blackface Factory. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> So, I mean, the whole th- the whole thing, the low-income kids coming from the city should be able to go out. And so it does de- definitely sound like it's a little bit racially targeted. Oh, it sounds like urban. A, yeah, it sounds urban like urban kids. Sounds like a I'm way. Air totally. It sounds like a way to like assimilate people into the Canadian That's what culture. It is. That's what it is. Into white Canadian culture. Yeah, I think at one point even referred to camping and wanted to make camping as a a Canadian national sport or something to that effect. So, you know, I mean, it's just a bit funny to me. I mean, for starters, like camping's already one of the most accessible things people can do. I don't think you need to like have tax credits to incentivize it. People can afford to camp. It's one of the few things Why people can afford to do. Why put that into after school programs There's, for the yeah. same I don't think low unquote, income people are like youth. tripping over themselves begging for a tax incentive to go camping. Like, Nobody cares. They probably would $2,000 for 75,000 families to go camping which would cost millions. So it's a, it, Apparently if it were fully implemented this plan would cost $150 million between to 2023 and 2024 so you <laughs> could put that into the anti-racism strategy and study some structural racism right i don't know it's just wild I'm just to saying, me i'm just saying and then you he know really is a corny motherfucker <laughs> it's he? just it's so corny and honestly if you want to care about you know public like access to public parks i mean they made the parks free in uh, the year when we were celebrating the 150 just make them free make them more accessible i mean you know what are the barriers to people being able to afford time off maybe address those yeah maybe address like you know those issues not that it's not that people don't know about camping yeah and you really want to address like bylaws and regulations zoning zoning and whatever address that maybe you know use some of the crown land that's sitting vacant that doesn't have there where there are no better housing and other types of things i mean like it's just it's just wild because the burning desire of low-income people is 150 million dollars so they can go camping like it's just i don't know maybe i'm really off base here but i think it's really no, comical and then no. he strides up up there so in his fucking base. canoe they released an updated version this yeah weekend, so the, the guy way. that's what i'm referring to yeah. so the guy who had possession of that so the, someone else got the video somehow the conservatives leaked it to the globe global and so there was a dude who worked with who, of course, yeah, incidentally. And uh, he was like, well, wait, I, I know where this video is. I was there. So he went and found all the old hard drives that he had sitting around <laughs> and went through them. And he found the extended version of this photo or this video and he shared it. And it's on. It's on. It's in Y'all, the star a, has it. Yeah, there's a director's cut. <laughs> yeah, really. 
the SAR has it, and you can see photos of other white people clowning around uh, in their costumes. So again, Trudeau's the only one doing fucking blackface. He's 23 the years old. The knees, man. I the can't knees, get over the knees. The knees kill me. He has ripped jeans, and the knees are black. So, yeah. you know, they, they he amount, was dedicated to it, his racism. Absolutely. The amount of precision, and he's wearing a white t shirt with a toucan on it. And but, the star made this big deal. Well, it's not a minute. Like, honestly, half the fucking article was like, oh, it's, it's, it's not, not a, a banana. banana. Well, what fucking difference does it make? I don't know. He's in blackface. I don't know where the banana conspiracy came from because I never saw the banana conspiracy. I didn't care about the banana. And then that was meant, that was also re- meant that, you know, he's making ra- racial, like a racist remark. And a toucan at is so much better. But the fact that he's wearing a tropical shirt. And it's tropical, motherfucker. It's tropical. It's less Just offensive. The it's less offensive than a banana, but he's still in blackface. So that's like the Trump card of um, racism. He's son. fucking <laughs> in blackface. I don't care if he's wearing a Care Bear Stare t-shirt. Okay. Yeah. The fucking point is that he's, he's in, in blackface. blackface. And the star. I kid you not, dedicates a whole article about how it's not a banana, it's a toucan, and goes through this. I don't know who the fuck thought, that, well, the same people who invited Maxine Bernier to have tea, apparently. Seriously, yes. Okay. So yeah, so the Sorry, stars that on the was shit my list. Red but lo and behold, the, the he, he did blackface while out in the wilderness teaching whitewater rafting with a bunch of other white people. <laughs> Polish. Oh my god, I can't even. The layers. I, I the, there's so many layers to this story. And then he rolls up in his canoe now, however many years later, and acts like camping is the middle of Canadian identity. And wants to help urban youth integrate in Canadian society by giving them money. Maybe, maybe I'm shit. reaching. Maybe no, I'm, you're not maybe I'm Charlie Day in that be, meme from It's no, no, Always no, no, Sunny. No, no, but no, 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 I don't know. Because you know that camping is a very white activity. I, yeah. It is very I've only been camping once in my life and it didn't end well. And you, Was it at school? <laughs> Something like that. It's a huge clusterfuck. I'm not against camping. I love nature. You know, I go with high hikes with my brown family. You know, I we, we're out there, you know, but... Yeah, I'm it's not a camper. You know, we don't camp. <laughs> the fuck? Have you no seen one cared the about price that bedwind camping joke gear? <laughs> That's the other thing. This is the other thing that angers me about this. Have you seen the price of camping gear? What the fuck are they supposed to camp with? Well, maybe that's what so the $2,000 now- are for. So, well. <laughs> well, you'll have to spend $2,000 to get out to the motherfucker. I, I just, I, I, I'm so, you know what? I'm so over this man. I, I, I am so over him. And that is my problem. Okay. No, the problem is that he was in blackface. That was really my problem. How about those poll numbers, though? (laughs) Guess we're the only ones who care. (laughs) The second that the polls came out, mildly, like, unaffected, everyone was like, no one cares. And everyone who cares. But, uh, but the people who care are the people who are trying, you're trying to court. Probably NBC. shifts. I think you need to interrogate those numbers more. And frankly, yeah. at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. If people don't care, that makes me just more concerned about. That's how knowledgeable most people in this country are, which is not at all. Yeah. And it's not only racism. It's everything. They know nothing about labor. Know nothing about the. I'm just angry now. Okay, next. So. This won't make me feel better, hmm. but um, so remember Brock Turner. So Regrettably, Brock, yes. Yes. So for those who don't remember, Brock Turner was the Stanford swimmer guy who was given, I think, three months a sentence for um, attempting to rape. I think he did rape her by that time. He assaulted assaulted her. There's yeah. I mean, it was. Anyway, there's a the whole thing about the charge. The point is he, was, charge, caught, he yeah. was literally caught with his pants down. It caused such a 
backlash that the judge, Judge Persky, was recalled in California by voters. And California also imposed mandatory minimum sentence for sexual assault. So um, when the charges were filed, they were filed under the name Emily Doe, kind of like a John Doe. Uh, Come to find out that Emily Doe is really Chanel Miller, who is um, partially racialized. She's white and Chinese. And uh, when I saw that that her identity that she said to myself, oh, that's why he got off. And there's a reason for this is because when we say the victim is on trial, it is not just her sexual history on trial. It's her entire identity. But what that means is that had Brock Turner assaulted, um, you know, like a grown up Jean Benet Ramsey, we'd be having a different conversation. So the New York Times wrote a great article about this. Uh, Ms. Miller has written a book and it's called her memoir. Actually, it's called Know My Name. And it was published, I believe, last week. So uh, what this goes through basically is systems of not only patriots, um, racism. So I just want to throw out some stats here. 55, between 21 and 55% of Asian American women experience physical or sexual violence from intimate partners. Yet, they are the least likely to report their sexual violence. A lack of financial resources, as well as trauma, immigration status, risk of alienation from families and communities, and mistrust of the criminal justice system are only some of the reasons one might choose not to report an assault or publicly accuse an assailant. I thought what was interesting, though, when I was reading this, is that uh, as much as, you know, I as a black woman uh, can... Uh, commiserate with those racial and sex um, gendered intersections. The history of American imperialism in countries adds a different aspect to it, and one that I personally can relate to because of you know British imperialism in a similar way, but it's different. And this is yet just one of those instances where those intersections looks different depending on who you're talking about. But to be fair, um, what I am really upset about with this case is that of race, racialized misogyny is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, so when this original um when the trial happened and the sentencing happened personal impact statement was so powerful and it was widely reported on and had uh, captured a moment and in in part because and she's commented on this there's an interview with her in teen vogue that that's really insightful as well and she talks about how to some extent the anonymity allowed for 
her statement to speak for many survivors and all survivors in this way, kind of to be this blank slate that people could see themselves in her statement. And her statement is really powerful. I just reread it just to kind of like look back on it now. And, you know, it's from 2015, right? So there's been a lot that's happened in our, not maybe our understanding, maybe had that framing and the Brock Turner uh, story was a turning point as well for the mainstream conversation. But just to look back at it after all these years, and it's still so... Uh, powerful and evocative trial itself and the sentencing a lot of the commentary at the time you'll recall was that the judge spent a lot of energy talking about protecting brock turner's future right um ensuring that you know his um yeah, you know, education and his potential wouldn't be thwarted by, uh, you know, the criminality of this, you know, in this one, uh, you know, one instance. And so that's why he was received a very lenient sentence. And there was almost uh, and the judge himself was a Stanford alum. And there was a lot written about, you know, the uh, people feeling that the judge saw himself in Brock Turner. Right. And we've talked about that before with a lot of the, a lot of criminal justice tendencies when you have decision makers who see themselves and give who come before them in the criminal justice system and then therefore treat them differently. And the same is true for victims. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no, now knowing that she was a racialized woman before a white judge, it just makes sense. It, it makes, now. you know, there was not much, you know, there's not nothing said about her future, the impact on her, her potential in the, you know, in coming out of the decision as, as the victim. And so much is, is on the focus on him and not, not impacting his future. And, you know, his dad, if, you know, famously saying, you know, why should a 20 minute encounter, you know, ruin his life essentially. And now Whereas I know now, where you got it from. <coughs> Whereas, uh, sorry, still sick. Whereas Chanel Miller's, you know, future and experience, you know, s- still were so affected. And uh, it's really, again, the other powerful aspects you take away when you go back and read this statement. You know, she ne- she never heard. she The incident happened here. She didn't remember anything. She was unconscious when it happened. She woke up in the hallway, spoke gown completely naked, didn't know what happened to her. Um, she was, she was assaulted, but she, you know, they, they, they're contesting whether or not it was rape because he used his fingers or whatever happened. And then there, she doesn't hear anything about it. She goes home. She can't tell her. She doesn't want to tell her family. She doesn't want to tell her boyfriend. She doesn't, she doesn't know how to, cause she can't remember it too. She can't process it. Right. And she doesn't want to get the pit be pitied by people right uh, and come in telling in telling folks close to her and then doesn't hear anyone from the police from hospital from anyone about it mm-hmm. weeks weeks and weeks go by and then finally she reads a news like about what happened to her fuck off yeah. and that's in her victim impact statement oh, wow. but you go back and you read that from the perspective of someone who is racialized wow. who's kind of t- probably taken for granted and she writes terrifying she writes in her memoir about as an asian american woman feeling unseen and un- yes. not understood right mm-hmm. um and kind of going between identities and not being un- yeah not being understood and then you know there's also the f- fetishization and sexualization of asian women in particular of that course. kind of is always in the background of her identity and, it, and it's a particular yeah. type of fetish action that is again tied to that American imperialism Mm -hmm. type of colonialism Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is a bit different from um, other racialized uh, people. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And and I think that's very interesting (laughs) when I was reading this. I, 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 I remember thinking, wow, you know, and the impact of, of internment camps for the Japanese Americans for the impact of, 
head tax, head tax, and stuff like that. Anyway, carry on. No, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, it, you know, she's. It's it's so interesting. Both the anonymity of her statement, kind of giving her space and us to have space for that conversation. But yeah. I think it's so powerful that owning it and having her identity public and us getting to know her. I mean, it's very bold and brave to do, but I think it's also so powerful. And I, I can't wait to read her memoir. Awesome. Yeah. So that's it, everybody. Uh, usual, check our Patreon. Please contribute. You can hit us up on social media and email us. That will be in the show notes. Uh, so you'll hear us again next week with our regular weekly podcast on Tuesdays. And of course, misogynist of the week on Friday. Uh, thank you for listening and stay bitchy. Bye. Bye.